Welcome to Learn or Be Learned. We've been working on this project for a while now and we're finally ready to share it with you. It's been under works for a good minute. And if you're on YouTube or Spotify, congratulations, you're watching the first video podcast of Learn or Be Learned. This is the setup that I've been working on. This is the other project for season two. Season two is gonna have video podcasting. But before that, this is the mini series about real estate and real estate investing mindset all of that with my two good buddies that are great realtors they share not only their mindsets about buying your first home buying your first rental property you know the mindset of scaling and money and how all this works but it's also the first time that we got to do a big project together got to do a whole video podcasting and i learned a lot that's kind of why this whole that's why everything's been so you know, inconsistent, I could say. So, you know, I appreciate your patience and your support and sharing these videos and episodes. Uh, I'm really excited to share this with you guys, honestly. And, you know, please let me know what you guys think. And, you know, without further ado, let's get right into this mini series, six episodes. We actually recorded them all in one batch. And, uh, you know, rookie mistake, live and learn. But I cut them in segments but i didn't properly address the ending of each episode so some of the episodes are like some of the episodes have a oh all right catch you in the next episode and then some of them are just cut right there abruptly so you know live and learn but i think it was still really awesome which i i'd love to hear what you guys think and you know without further ado let's jump right into it thanks here's a simple distinction that I think people are curious about is what is the difference between single family and multifamily? Uh, it's the word itself, right? Is if you think about, if you break the word down, single family, one family, multifamily, more than one family, right? So multifamily is the realster term, but the more common term is apartments. That's what you can think about. Single family is just your neighborhood house, your suburban house. That's what a single family is. Um, and yeah. So multifamilies are just duplexes, apartments. Duplex, quadplex. But typically when investors are talking about multifamily investing, they're typically talking about apartments. Mm-hmm. It could be a small apartment. It could be a 20-unit apartment. It doesn't have to be a 400-unit apartment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but although technically a duplex is multifamily, most investors are going to refer it to as, as a duplex. Okay. A duplex, a trip triplex or a quadplex anything past four homes is legally classified as an apartment right okay so what is a good avenue for a beginner investor to dabble in um that depends on their comfort and level of risk right and that's honestly the best way to answer that because you can dabble in real estate however you want you can get into multifamily you can get into the duplex or quadplex you could do flipping you can do flipping. You can literally get into any- wholesaling. Those are some stuff. Yeah, so wholesaling. Yeah, for example, like so. There's so many avenues that you can break into. So at the end of the day, it's like how comfortable are you with losing your money? Because when you go in, when you go into real estate investing, it is you put the money in, and you're not gonna get that back probably like another year or two years, depending on what your timeline is. It depends on the investment and the investments. Well, there's so many like criteria that just break down. Like even now, we're not even agreeing on what type of avenue it is, right? And that I clearly identifies. It's an ocean. Yeah, it yeah. clearly identifies the fact that there is no one avenue. It's fundamentally 
how comfortable are you and what are you trying to get what's your timeline are you trying to get a return out in like two years five years ten years fifteen years and that's based on that we can give you better answers so let's talk about um if you're talking about young investors the easiest way to get started is house hacking i say easiest it's not easy <laughs> it's still hard yeah. still involves risk and you really have to know what you're doing but it is the easiest right uh, what is house hacking? You should probably Google it. There's a ton of courses on this stuff, right? It's also called co-living. It's where you buy a house for yourself and you live in the master bedroom and you buy a four bedroom house and you get three roommates. And the idea is, is the cost of your utilities, HOA and, in, and your mortgage, which is PITI, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, combining all of these um, for, oh, okay, well, technically there's four plus two, so six, six components. The cost of all of those are split amongst those three roommates. So the original idea is that you live for free. And now, build equity, right? And build equity. They're paying for your equity and paying for your principal pay down. And there's a legal requirement of how long you have to be in that home. Uh, plus, it takes you some time to repair your credit and get your savings together. And then you go buy your next home. And then you can rent out the fourth room, and now you're cash flowing. And then the more you do this, the faster you can do it because you compound. The first couple of years are going to be slow, but once you got maybe three houses uh, in, right, the fourth house, you could probably just pay for the whole thing from the other three or four homes is the idea, right? Uh, and people have done this very successfully. Now, you still have to qualify for a home by yourself, you know, you still have to be able to afford it, whether in case nobody can pay, you still have to be able to pay it yourself. So there are a lot of requirements to this. Mm -hmm. But something really unique is that once you have a rental home, it is considered a part of your income for future homes. Repeat that. So let's say that you're house hacking and you right now you have three roommates and four rooms and you're about to buy the next one. You can literally tell the mortgage company, I'm going to house hack, right? Okay. Um, again, maybe defer to your realtor on that one. Uh, the mortgage company will take your too soon becoming income from your bedroom that once you move here will generate income oh. as a part of your income. Okay. Or at the very least, at the very least, they will take the three other roommates that are paying as income. And so your debt-to-income ratio is much nicer, right. or at the very least, balanced. Mm -hmm. So if you have the same amount of um, income to debt, mm -hmm. it actually looks like this. It's actually not balanced. Because the more you do it, it looks like your income is greater than your debt. Because over time, your debt gets paid down, but your income stays steady. Right. So the more you do this, the easier it becomes to buy more homes. So that's right. easiest way to do it. Uh, there is a lot of risk involved in that, right? You have vacancies. They're usually month-to-month -month leases. And you're going to have roommate problems that you get to deal with, right? Uh, conflict resolution, etc. If you want something more stable and secure, single-family investing is great. Uh, but you need to put 20% down. You can't do the 5% down thing, right? Because you're not living in the home. But if you get that, you can have an empty house. You can hand it over to a great property management company. They're going to market it for you, manage it for you. And that rental is going to pay the mortgage. They're paying down your principal. Depending on the market you're in, maybe 100 bucks, 150 bucks in your pocket. 
Now there is a work a workaround to that, correct? Where you could live in the home for a few months or something like that, and then it qualifies as like this is your first time home, and then you can do the five percent. Oh. I mean, if you like live that. in the house for a few months, right? for like a year, a year, I think it's either six months or a year, depending on your state. Okay. Then yeah, then you've lived in the home. Yeah, and then, then it doesn't matter. Start, then yeah. then it, then you could do whatever you want. But if you don't want to move into the home, then you have to put twenty percent down. Mm-hmm. But if you're ready to move into the home, use it as a second home or something. There's stipulations, by the way. Like if you buy a second home, you have to be able to have unfettered access to it. Anytime you want. You cannot sign a long-term lease on a second mortgage. That is mortgage fraud. Why why can't you do that? Because it's a vacation home mortgage. You can't take a vacation home mortgage and then just lease it out completely, right? Uh, But you could do an Airbnb or a short-term rental, Mm -hmm. um, which I think a lot of people are doing, right? So this way you can get uh, an advantageous um, interest rate and a low percent down. The other really nice part is you got a vacation home. You're legally obligated to vacation there. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, this is pretty cool, right? So you're like, you go, you enjoy your two weeks or whatever your legal requirement is. You make sure you document it. Yeah. And then you got 50 weeks to rent it. Right. And so it's, um, so that's actually works out very well as, mm-hmm. as well. Um, so if you want to look at, uh, and then you have multifamily syndications where, or syndications in general, where you have these large commercial properties. Could be a strip mall, could be construction, could be an apartment, could be a warehouse, could be, you know, raw land. Mm-hmm. Where you get a bunch of investors together to pool in money, and then that's your down payment to go to the bank and then get uh, a mortgage and you buy that land and you develop it somehow. Or you do a value add multifamily or warehouse where you buy older properties, mismanaged properties, and you renovate them and elevate the value, add amenities, uh, really clean up the place, provide better service, tangible service, Mm -hmm. raise rents, and then sell it for a multiple. And you exit and you come out, right? Um, So that's what a syndication is. Mm -hmm. So just because we're on the topic of exits, I'd like to mention, growing up, I always thought the idea was you buy a house and you never sell it. Right. We've actually shifted our mindset that every investment requires an exit because most amount of money is made on the exit. We actually tell our investors at least every 10 years, cycle your home. Even if that means you sell the home and buy the neighbor's house, do it because you always need to keep exiting. Theoretically, nobody ever buys a neighbor's house. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But they get the idea. So what's the point of that? So you you buy a home. Typically, you're not trying to buy your neighbor's house that you live in because it's too expensive. You're buying outside of the city, further out, wherever you are. And you kind of wait till that area develops and the value goes up. You sell that and then you go out again and you buy two houses. Right. And then you keep going. So that's the idea there. So always have an exit. Um, Or a good idea is every five years. Around five years, you should look for an exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just a thumb rule. Not, you know, nothing right. solid there, but you know, 
five-ish years, you're looking for... And, oh, an exit doesn't have to be a hard exit either. It could be a soft exit. Mm-hmm. It could be a refinance. Right. right. It could be a cash out refinance where you pull some money out. Uh, that's considered a soft exit. Mm-hmm. So, Nathan, maybe you can help answer this question. You see people, you know, obviously different stages of life, different journeys, especially through real estate, right? You see from the first time home buyers, I'm assuming you've also worked with people that you know, have a large, extensive portfolio. How does one even get to that point, right? So as a first-time home buyer, for, ex- for example, if, if you're a first-time home buyer, that might be the most daunting thing to look at. Like, this guy has 15 homes, 30 homes. Like, that's insane. How do you, how can you even obtain to that, right? So what would you say to people like, people that are starting, right? Like, what is the game plan to get, to a point like that yeah great question so the game plan sort of stems with also with Ramu said is recycling in a way because it, it is at the exit that you make a lot of cash and that could be your pool of capital to like disperse into buying two more properties like i have one client who is currently sitting with enough cash where he can comfortably buy four properties and that's one person four investment properties and that person achieved that because of it's like job category and the pay salary and things like that so he has disposable income um, in this situation for people who are starting off I mean it's, it's better to start off with something that's comfortable you understand and you can like manage by yourself if you want to like get in the dirt or if you want to like have somebody else manage the property manager that's also a great way um, for me if it's a first-time investor I try to guide them in the most common like common sensible like investment because I don't want them to jump into something that they think looks shiny but once you get into it, it's like completely not what they're expecting mm-hmm. so for example what i do is majority of my investors that i work with are first-time investors their ultimate goal is to like go four or five properties and one investor that i can recall uh, they will say hey i want to own a property i want to have cash flow and when they mention cash flow i'm like do you understand what the fundamentals of cash flow are like the things you mentioned the six things right piti hoa and all this stuff having them help to understand that and then you work your way from there once the investor can understand the investor terminology and things like that, then I feel like, okay, now you know exactly what it is. Let's reevaluate the plan you initially mentioned when you called me. We don't want to own four properties. Do you think that's realistic? And they're like, oh, maybe not. Because the reality is, in Austin, properties that are going in rent right now were that acquired like two, three years ago are not cash flowing for almost four years. Because rent is, because mortgage, because of interest rates and things like that, have reached a, such a peak or to reach the limit where rent cannot catch up. Like if it if it does, Austin's rental market would just like go to crap because there's literally no one guy can afford rental markets. So those are there are the discrepancies that people are thinking about. So to answer your question, it's it's not it's a great question because it is aspiring to like building a portfolio that just bring, brings in passive income. But the reality is, it depends on the market you're in. Austin's not a cash flowing city. It will not be for like two, three years unless you're putting a lot of money in initially. Then you can probably max like minimize your mortgage. But for the average investor, it is non cash flow for six for like six years at least. And yeah. it depends on where you're putting your finger on the map. When you were in the states, you're like this is where I want to invest. Study that micro market. See what the trends are. What the cash flow timeline is and then based on that you will be able to create a plan it's like okay so if i'm cash flowing by this much and then i can save up that cash flow get the next down payment put together for the next property then recycle 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 and the thing just grows eventually that's how you build a portfolio 
but uh, it just depends on the markets, honestly. So the single-family rentals are getting very complex, which is why we're shifting to multifamily investments and the syndications. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you talk about... So, so here's a tip that I tell my... Some... Let me start over. So sometimes we have first-time investors come mm-hmm. to us and say, well, I want an investment home in Frisco, Texas, or Austin, Texas. You know, and they'll pick the fastest growing city in the country at the time and go, I want to I want a passive investment in this highly coveted, extremely competitive area. Can you help me find one? I was like, if we can find a house just to buy like anything, I think I'd be that'd be awesome. I don't think we're going to be able to really go in there and aggressively do it if you're a first time home buyer, Right. I think if you're a a seasoned investor mm-hmm. and you have a lot of capital you can go compete in these places but typically if you're at some party and your buddy goes you know a good place to buy real estate that city <laughs> it's probably too late to buy there if everybody's <laughs> heard about it yeah. yeah it's not where you want to buy you want to be there before. you are the person the investors are selling to mm-hmm. you don't want to be that person right yeah. you want to be the investor that buys it before it blows up, mm-hmm. which is why you need a good realtor who knows the market so well, knows where the market is going, and you go and buy there. Investment homes, typically when you buy an investment home, it's in an area that makes you slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay. If you are very cushy and comfortable about an investment home, it's probably the wrong per. and you're a new investor, mm-hmm. it's probably the wrong purchase. Now, seasoned investors are going to be get real giddy about, you know, going to the outskirts of the city because they know which way the city is growing and buying up these properties because they're like, oh, in three years, you know, (laughs) this property is going to go up like 30 percent. Right. Projections. Right. Um, So you just really need to have a good team. Uh, Not all realtors work with investors. If you are an investor, make sure that you ask your realtor, are you an investor friendly realtor? And do you have a team behind you that is also investor friendly? Like we have investor friendly mortgage loan officers. What does that mean? They know how to have a conversation with investors and prepare them for that type of loan. It is slightly different. There are some laws. You really want to know that everybody on the team knows what they're doing to support you to the maximum extent and also protects you from making any legal mistakes. We want to take... We want to take the full benefit of the law and not break the law. And when you get to the investment side, it gets complex. It gets very complex. You need a tax person. You need a realtor. You need a mortgage loan officer. If you're just buying a, you know, a single family investment home by yourself. At the minimum, you also need a really good property manager. So we did talk about a few other topics here, like flipping Airbnbs, you know, renovating. There's all these different types of avenues for investing, right? Let's go a little bit more into that. Let's start with the house flipping, right? So what really is that? I think people kind of understand product flipping or, you know, smaller scale things. And I'm assuming in the macrocosm, it's essentially the same thing. But, you know, in more detail, what exactly is it? So if you think about flipping, it starts with uh, identifying a property like and then doing X, Y and Z things to it to, res- to appreciate the value and resell it. That's like the basic way of explaining it. 
um, the nitty gritty what happens is I can give it a real life, real life example of what happens in Austin. Uh, Pre-COVID, Austin, like parts of downtown Austin was undervalued a lot. Um, there were properties that were like just 50 foot lots, uh, 6,000 square feet of land space that were getting listed for like, literally this is no homes, like broken down homes, literally to the core. They would buy the lots just for $700,000 because they just land itself, they're buying it. Break down the property and then go all the way up from their building property. That is in a way a flip, but it, it is more of like a renovation from the ground. That's up. a construction, right? Yeah. It's a brand new construction. It's a brand new construction, but the value of the home, the value of the land, like doubles or sometimes even double, like triples if it's worst case scenario, right. or like if there's like really high level of demand. Uh, flipping, uh, the perfect way to think about it is Zillow. What Zillow does is one of their business models was they would uh, go into a neighborhood, they would place an offer on a home saying, hey, your estimate is actually worth this much. Let's say there's a home that's like three bed, two bath, 2,000 square feet in Leander, Texas. Zillow comes in and says, oh, this home, we'll buy, give you $500,000 in cash to buy this property, blah, blah, blah. They acquire the property. They maybe change up the carpets. They may repaint everything, maybe do some like light touches here and there. Maybe put on like a nice sod in the front yard, paint it here and there. That might take about a month. That's like usually the labor intensive aspect, right? And then once that month expires and like everything's taken care of, they realist the property. Now at this time, they probably will increase it by 35%. So now this home that they bought a month ago for 500,000, they're selling it for another 35%. That 35% is the margin that they make on. So flippers, their main business model is making money on that margin, right? So you need to know what the after repair value so is. So ARV, which is ARV. a huge important number, ARV. And then you have to figure out, you have to estimate and be pretty accurate at your estimation what repairs and the cost of repairs will go into exactly. it. And then you have to factor in your profit and you take ARV minus renovation minus profit equals purchase price. Exactly. And then you go and offer them that number and you got to make that work. So Zillow was doing that simple formula through like a huge like software engineers and all that stuff. But what they forgot to understand was one side note of this. Um, they forgot to add in the component of market cycles, micro market cycles, different like aspects of design, all those things like we're mm -hmm. talking about. And that gave them an $8 billion, you know, slap on the wrist, which was like really bad for them. And they shut down the market. I mean, they literally shut down their, uh, that division of the business. And that's a perfect example of like people who don't know what they're doing, don't get into because that is very cost sensitive, very time sensitive. Like you're investing in there, unless you're like a manager who's like working for you on the side. Um, but if you're a first-time investor, flipping is like a kind of an intensive business. So the, the other thing is also if you buy a functionally obsolete home and renovate it and try to resell it, you're going to struggle. Those types of homes, you have to renovate and either sell it to an investor or you have to have enough capacity to bite the bullet knowing that the money has already been invested and then rent it and collect rent from it because only you, you can't you cannot sell a functionally obsolete home um to a new buyer They're, they don't want a pretty looking old house it's old it looks the design is old you can't move a pillar you can't move walls in uh residential homes so you're kind of stuck with what you have and so you really need to know the sub-market and you know, what people are looking for. Of course, people do this very successfully. Flipping has been around for decades. Uh, flip to rent, flip to sell. Uh, if you find these homes and 
sell the option to an investor to do this. It's called wholesaling. You actually don't have to own any property. You legally just put the home under contract and then you have 30 days to resell it and collect a commission. Mm-hmm. So these are all ways people do um, real estate investing, but those are very, very common, right? Like you Google that stuff and that's the first thing that pops up on YouTube, those few things. Um, but you know what a lot of people don't, or I, don't, I won't say a lot of people don't talk about this, but some information that's a little harder to come by is where do you put the money? So like, here's a, so Nathan, you can't answer this. Shiva, <laughs> let me ask you a quiz question. Okay. Right. Let's say, um, there's three homes that are carbon copies of each other. They're on the same street facing the same way. One homeowner puts a pool in the backyard another homeowner repaints the walls and another homeowner um, changes the countertop to granite and you know let's say so out of these which uh, homeowner or how many homeowners do you think can recoup the cost of their investment when they sell the home so from my experiences, I would assume definitely the granite, the granite guy, right? The mm-hmm. person that has um, invested in granite, which is very expensive. So from my knowledge, I think that would be a solid one. And then I would have to go with, I know walls is definitely not something that would like you know increase the value of a home. Maybe the pool... I can't really say. I think the I think with the pool. Long story short, no. But I think maybe certain home buyers would appreciate a pool. So you understand real estate pretty well. So granite adds and retains value. Painting walls don't add value, but they won't scare buyers away because mm-hmm. you have dirty walls. No one's buying your house. So it's a cost that you must input to sell. It's not a recoupable cost but it's a minimum maintenance cost. A pool has no value when you resell it. Mm-hmm. You can spend $200,000 building a pool in your backyard, and when homeowners try to recoup that cost, they're real disappointed when the realtor says, you enjoyed it for five years, and that's what it's worth. It actually adds no more value to the price of the home. I, but why is that? So it a pool is like... Um, it's like getting an extra addition to something that is personal to you. You haven't thought about who the next person in the line is. You're like the first one ordering the menu for the person behind you. Right. You, they may not want it. They pull. may not want it. So you cannot say, I, because I spend this much, you have to not pay me for that much. Well, they're like, well, I didn't want it in the first place. So it's not a value add. But can't that be said for granite and things like that too? Not necessarily. Why is that? So there's certain things that will always retain value in a home. Right, high-end carpet, mm. hardwood floors, expensive rock. Certain in certain markets, yeah, expensive rock, right? Uh, in on in the outside of the home. Um, whenever you renovate the kitchen, right, kitchen appliances, things that you use every day will retain value okay. because they're. I mean, you're gonna feel it and use it. You're gonna use a microwave every day. You're gonna use a stove almost every day. You're gonna use a carpet every minute you're in the house hardwood floors have its own value granite has its own value they have salvage value to them that's true so they're they're going to retain value mm-hmm. the truth is is no one's going to buy your salvaged wood or <laughs> granite right but on paper 
right. right? They retain salvage value, so therefore it retains value when you sell. It's, it's a premium upgrade. Media rooms are also sunken costs. So the room itself has value, but anything in the room has no value when you resell. It's actually one of the most mixed liabilities that sellers get caught in. Because it'll be like, I set up this badass media room. And the next guy walks in and goes, which guy set this up? Right? <laughs> like, this doesn't look that great. Yeah. You know? Um, it's very personal. This is like buying something for the next person. You don't know if they want that. You don't know if they want a horizontal screen or more square screen or whatever. Um, so that is actually one of the places that gets most renovated after homes are sold. Media rooms. Media rooms. Oh, okay. Because people typically, we, you know. It is a very personal yeah. space. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so that's an example of a mm -hmm. sunken cost. Right. There are other things that you get a benefit in used homes that you cannot, uh, that you will not get in a new home, but also cannot recoup. Like uh, when you buy new homes, you will discover most builders don't put fans in every room. But when you buy used homes, there'll be a fan in every room. That's because somebody has spent the money to put a fan in that room. That is not a recoupable expense. Mm -hmm. Although, if you don't have fans in every room, you might not be able to sell the house. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's like painting the walls, right? right? So there are some, you know, when, when we have some new home buyers, they'll say, should I buy a used home or a new home? I was like, there's pluses and minuses to both. A used home will have everything that you think a home has. A new home will have less maintenance. Yeah. I take that back. After the first year. <laughs> the first year, you're going to be maintaining a bunch of stuff that you don't even know existed, right? Once you get all the warranty stuff fixed, then it'll be relatively low maintenance. It's a newer home. And they go, well, what do you mean? I was like, some homes don't come with towel racks or toilet paper holders. Um, some homes don't come with fans in all the rooms. And new home buyers are like, what? That's crazy. First time home buyers are like, what do you mean? I was like, yeah, pay close attention. When you go, they're like, oh, but I saw it in the model home. Yeah, that's not 100% accurate, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, for example, we went to, when we were home, home shopping, we went to a model home. And my wife fell in love with these blue cabinets. Uh, it, was, it was powder blue, very similar to the, okay. your shirt color. And, um, Which is like a light blue. It's like a light blue, right. yeah. And it looked very nice. I know it, looks, it sounds kind of weird, but it looked very nice in that setup. And we went to the design studio and said, hey, where's the blue cabinet option? And they were like, oh, it's a custom color. Well, okay, well, how much does that cost? And they told us the breakdown. And it was like $6,000 just to repaint the cabinets. It's not the cost of the cabinet. Yeah. Just to repaint them. And this was a townhome. Yeah. So it was not like, it's not like sprawling cabinetry, <laughs> right, in a big house. Yeah. And we just couldn't believe it. We're like, well, why would you paint... The model home cabinet's blue. And they're like, it's really pretty. You liked it, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we're buying the house. I guess it worked, right? Yeah. So you can't believe everything yeah. that you see in a model home. There are certain things that they will do, certain things that they won't do. They put in a lot of extra effort. Or you could just try to buy the model home. <laughs> that <Right>. works too. <laughs> so, so back then, to the investments. So then I guess lastly what we have, which I know – you guys have a lot of interest and, and some experience in is Airbnbs, right? So the idea of Airbnbs, and I think there's a lot of conflicting information about this on the internet with people thinking, you know, 
some people believing Airbnb is to not be as safe, thinking that there are cameras everywhere. Uh, I do I do know Airbnb's policy about cameras is a little odd, right? I think you can have cameras outside, but not Correct. inside the house. But it's, Cameras are okay for security, but not invasion of privacy. Right. And then I think where the fear stems on that is, you know, what if they're hidden cameras and things like that, right? So Airbnb's gotten some weird confusion of mixed feelings in the emotional side of the market, right? So what you're referencing is a few unethical players, right? That you hear about in the news. Mm -hmm. That is not the norm. Right. Right. Correct. Uh, You're going to have bad apples in every industry, right? And that's usually what you're going to be reading about in the news. It's really boring to read about, oh, here's a routine business owner that ran a routine year and made steady, (laughs) stable profits. (laughs) Right. 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 And they have decent customer service. Like nobody wants, like there's no story there. Mm -hmm. Right. So typically the things you read are the most terrible things or the, you know, star luck um, success story that's always out of the norm. Uh, in terms of as an investor, Airbnbs have gotten a lot of attention recently because of the illusion of, oh, it's passive. I get a vacation home. It's it's lucrative. It can be, mm-hmm. but we're hearing about all the lucrative ones. We're not hearing <laughs> about the average ones. Right. Right. You really have to do your homework. There's been a huge influx of money into Airbnbs that are just for Airbnb purposes. Right. Not like I'm renting a room or I'm going to rent my house and I'm on vacation. Like I'm going to buy a house and decorate it just for it to be an Airbnb. If you don't do that right, it can be one of the largest liabilities that you have because you have a mortgage that you own and you have CapEx that you've invested in this home that is all Mm non-recoupable. You buy this chair, you walk out of the store. Let's say this chair costs $500. Let's say you walk back into the store. You open the box, go home, set up this chair, decide you don't like it, pack it back in the box. Next day, twenty within 24 hours, you go back and you say, I want to return it. What is the value of this chair right now? They'll be like, oh, $300, maybe $200. But there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, It's not new anymore. Therefore, it's worth less. Mm-hmm. It's like a car. You drive it off the lot, loses value. And then you have small decor like wall hangings. Zero value retention, right? It has it has an emotional value, but you can't put it on your balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of there's a lot of cost that goes into an Airbnb, but it's high risk, uh, high reward. And what we call it is a proactive investment. People talk about passive investing, and Airbnb is the furthest thing from passive. It's not even active. It's proactive. Mm-hmm. A single family rental is is active, right? It's moderate. You spend a few hours a month, right? Maybe one to two hours a month maintaining the home and you're pretty good. Accounting, check the mortgage, check on tenants, is all the bills paid. It's active. And then you have passive, which is multifamily syndications, warehouses, etc., where somebody else is doing all of the work. You have very limited risk, but you share in the returns on the way back. Now then, why doesn't everybody do syndications? There's a legal requirement that you have to be an accredited investor to invest in these investments. That's why. Um, 
And if you're not an accredited investor, then you might not be able to invest in that. Right. And it's larger sums of money, correct? You can't yeah. buy portions of, you know, you could buy $50 worth of stock or $100, mm -hmm. $5,000 of stock. But I think, what is it, like minimums are usually 50 They're like 50000 Yeah. Uh, depending on if you work with some very high-profile syndicators, 100000 is the minimum. So, I mean, you're talking about potentially somebody's annual salary, right, for one investment. So it's not necessarily affordable. But if you look at a single family investment, the cheapest single family home you're going to buy is going to cost you sixty-five dollars to $85,000 right. cash out of hand and not an Airbnb, just like an empty house that you buy in rent uh, is going to cost you that. So it's very similar. It's just uh, and that goes back to, you know, the pride of homeownership. It's more exciting to own your own home. Not very exciting to own, be in a syndication, but syndications do provide a better return. They, they give you a better ROI than single family plus mitigated risk, which is why it's exploded in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I think now would be a good time for us to transition into the next episode. What do you guys think? Sounds good to me. Cool. So we're by the way, one final thing I did want to mention, we are syndicators. So if you're interested in learning more about investing in warehouses, multifamily apartments, land, uh, also uh, very cherry-picked, um, lower-risk profile VC investments, as well as certain hedge funds, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to share more information on how you can get plugged into our system and potentially start investing with us for passive returns. If you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, yeah, you should totally hit up or, you well, know, our investors even... are all over the country. Really? Yeah. So a lot of our investors it's... don't even live in Dallas. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I kind of already knew that. I, I just assumed a lot of your projects were around here. Our projects are in Texas. Right. But, but you don't have to be in. Investments. Right, right. Most so, of these people never see the project. Right. So if you're interested, <laughs> I will have Ramu's stuff in the description for that. And Nathan, you are just still staying local, correct? In yeah, Austin. so what, what Ramu mean by Texas, Texas is we both have license that is fully active within the state or within the boundaries of Texas. Um, but usually realtors stay to a local area. So for example, I'm in the Austin Metro. So anywhere within those five counties, you hit me up. I can give you all the information you need to know exactly what that is. The reason for that is those type of local agents are far more specialized in that area. It's like asking an uh, agent in Florida how Texas market is, how Austin's doing. He probably doesn't know the nooks and crannies of where the Costco is or where the new school's coming mm -hmm. up or where the new like Amazon warehouse That makes is. sense, right? So those type of things. So uh, for me, it's Austin. If you have any questions about Austin market, anything related between Austin, Dallas, and Houston, I can put you in connections with those people. Like Rama, for example, in Dallas, Houston, the same thing. And just make sure you're in good hands. If you're looking for a primary home purchase, a home for you to live in, we operate in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex market. And you can reach out to us. If you're looking for an investment, we invest predominantly in Texas uh, and our warehouses are all over Central America um, and further expanding coast to coast. You don't have to be where your investment is, provided that you have a team taking care of it. I would be a part of your team. As long as I'm close to your investment, you don't have to be. I just wanted to say personally that these two guys are awesome at what they do. You know, they're very social. They're very 
um, from my personal experience, they really do try to connect with you and try to see what you are looking for. And they're no BS guys too. So if they don't think something will work out for you, they will tell it to your face. They will be honest with you and, you know, truly love what these guys do. If you're interested or you want to learn more, everything that you need to find them or more information will be in the podcast description. And thank you guys for, thank you guys so much for watching and we will see you on the next episode of the mini series. See you in the next episode. See you guys.